Conversations That Matter podcast. I'm your host as always, John Harris. And we have an important topic today and a special guest to help us with this topic. This is a topic I've covered before in various ways, but I don't think I have as much knowledge as our guest. Our guest is Dr. Jared Moore, uh, who has written a a dissertation. He actually has a book coming out on the topic of same-sex attraction, the lust of the flesh. And um, he is a graduate of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He has a PhD in uh, systematic theology, and uh, he is a co-author of the book, The Pop Culture Parent Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And he's going to help us today on this topic of same-sex attraction, revoice theology, and homosexuality. Welcome, Dr. Jared Moore. John, thanks for having me, man. I'm looking forward to getting in this. I appreciate you being willing to... First of all, I think I should just ask this question. You're willing to be brave. What's up with that? Because most seminary (laughs) graduates, most classmates I had at Southeastern even, wouldn't want to touch this subject with a 10-foot pole. So what gives you the bravery to touch this? Well, for me, it's really a pastoral pastoral issue. Um, I mean, think of, think of Martin Luther with John Tinsel, you know, folks, him teaching people that they can buy their loved ones out of purgatory. And that sparked the Reformation. It was ultimately Luther's pastoral heart where he was concerned with his congregation, concerned with truth. And um, for me, I think of people in my church who are battling same-sex attraction, who have those desires, and them Googling some of the names that I'm about to mention and being taught essentially heresy, um, that heresy is going to save them. What The ultimate issue is that this is a false gospel. People want to remove the sin of same-sex attraction by saying it's not sin. And the only way to remove it is by repenting and believing in Christ. Only Christ can take our sin away. Amen. But they're trying to use empty rhetoric to take sin away. And it, it is critical theory. I mean, it is this issue of, you're, you're oppressed. They even use language of sexual minority. Um, you're a sexual minority, therefore you're not sinning in this area. And um, it, it's oppressed versus oppressor and the oppressed can't sin. Um, it, it, it's just a, it's a pastoral uh, burden for me. And that's kind of what's spurring me. Um, and two, the sexual revolution doesn't have any breaks. You know, they're, they're not slowing down. They're going to push this in, into further depravity. And if same-sex attraction is not sin, then pedophilic attraction is not sin. I, d- I just saw um, it, was a, it was a journal article from Cambridge um, just to, this morning, I believe, or last night, one uh, it was arguing for bestiality due to being one with it was something about how we're one with the animal kingdom and all this. <laughs> but I mean, how can, how can a pastor, if he says that perverse attraction is not sin, how can he say that sexual attraction to animals is not sin? I mean, how can he, how can he say that it is sin? How can he rebuke somebody who comes to him and says, I experience bestial attraction and what, what can they, what can he say if he has said that same-sex attraction is not sin? Right. And so I'm, I'm concerned in on those two fronts that for my own congregation, for young people in my church, uh, for, and also for young people in other churches. And then two, um, you know, you can't unring this bell. If you can't rebuke same-sex attraction, you can't rebuke any attraction under the sun. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I pointed out before, and I'm sure you have in others, that they would never apply this logic to the uh, things that are very unfavorable today, even to worldly people like racism or sexism or something. They would never say, well, it's fine to um, fantasize or to j- just desire to beat your wife. You just don't do it. You know, that's, mm-hmm. right. And we should form a society for Christians who desire to beat their wives. We, we would never do that. And of course, the accusation is you're comparing same sex attraction to beating your. It's like, no, they're just both their sins in scripture. And um, so, I mean, I think you're pointing out just some common sense things here, but it's lost on some of the uh, supposedly smartest among us. And that's where I think I've had trouble even myself trying to square how how does this particular individual, I'm sure you'll name some of them soon, um, have such good convictions in these other areas, theologically, perhaps, and then on this issue, it, it may be a few others, but uh, but but as a small sliver of issues that are just in vogue today in the world, they they just lose it. They, they don't have any uh, sense of uh, proportion or um, even an, an attempt to be somewhat consistent. And, um, you know, it, it is disturbing. It is um, it is something I've seen work its way into the lives of people who legitimately do struggle with these, these temptations and then they're given somewhat of a pass that they can have these temptations and it give, gets them to the next rung which is to um, be more and more soft on the issue of homosexuality to the point some of them have even gone into homosexuality because of this and and i see this as an on-ramp and i'm sure you do too um well, why don't we start here why don't you tell us a little bit why don't we like lay a groundwork um, so we, we're just everyone's clear on what what are the revoice people? And, and I know that's a broad spectrum to some extent, but what what is being argued on the other side of this issue? The thing that we're both concerned about here. And then what is your basic response to this um, from Augustine, from the scripture and why you disagree with revoice theology, we'll say. Sure. So revoice essentially argues that. Homosexual orientation, which is same-sex attraction, is not sinful. They argue that it's caused by the fall, that it comes from the fall, that is fall in, but it is not sin. But they do say that same-sex sexual attraction, so they separate same-sex attraction from same-sex sexual attraction. They say the same-sex sexual attraction is sin, but same-sex attraction can be inherently good. And they actually argue that they they're telling people to act on their same sex attraction or to act on their homosexual orientation, but not to act on their same sex sexual attraction. And they argue that they affirm the um, traditional Christian sexual ethic. And of course, what I just described is obviously not part of the traditional biblical Christian sexual ethic where you parse out, where, where essentially you argue that the flesh can produce good. Right. Is what they're arguing. And, um, you know, the, the Bible says the opposite of that. And uh, as far as my response to that, Jesus said to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, the 10th commandment says you shall not desire anything that belongs to your neighbor. Um, in Romans 1, Paul rebukes not only actions, but desires, passions. Um, In James 1, um, it is not just the behavior that God cannot do, 
but it's the actual inner temptation that God cannot do because it is sin, because it is evil. You know, if the devil tempts you, the devil is sinning. But if you tempt yourself, free voice would have you to believe you're not sinning. Um, but James says that's, a, that's aimed at death. It cannot be aimed at holiness, but Revoice wants you to believe they can aim their same-sex attraction to holiness. And so they're saying that a desire of the flesh can become a desire of the spirit. That is not how Paul describes sin in Romans 7 or Galatians 5. There are desires of the flesh and desires of the spirit. There are not desires of the flesh that become desires of the spirit or desires of the spirit that become desires of the flesh. There are two distinct realities. The Holy Spirit... When you get saved, God, the Holy Spirit comes in your heart. He regenerates you. And now he gives you a new spirit. And now you have the flesh producing desires and the spirit producing desires. Now, the spirit, the Holy Spirit has freed your will to where you no longer have to bow to the flesh. You can reject the old man and put on the new one. You can walk in the spirit and not walk in the flesh. But to say that the desires of the spirit and the flesh are one and the same is just flat out unbiblical, but that's what Revoice has to teach. They either have to indict God on his design in saying that they'll use language like same-sex beauty. You know, same-sex beauty is what draws homosexuals. And they're trying to indict God. They're saying that the design of God is what is really drawing them to the same sex. And that just isn't true. It's like me saying that same race beauty makes me a white supremacist. Like I'm a white supremacist because it is same race beauty that draws me to, to the same race. I mean, it, it's just all it is, is empty rhetoric. It's just empty rhetoric. That's what all that literally, this is not exegesis. This is not Bible. It's not even historic Christianity. Um, it is rhetoric. Yeah, you won't find this if you go back to the Reformers or the Puritans or really any example you can find from church history, Orthodox church history. I was wondering, um, I want to ask this question because I asked this to M.D. Perkins. I asked this to anyone who tries to tackle this issue. The the wiggle room, it seems like the revoice advocates find, is that they will compare uh, homosexual desire to heterosexual. And they'll say, well... You know, before you were married, you know, weren't you looking around for a wife and weren't you looking for someone who you were attracted to? Well, was that wrong to be attracted to someone at that time who wasn't your wife, became your wife later? Uh, isn't that something that's something that God creates in us? And I guess we would say that's part of the natural order to identify beauty. We wouldn't say that that's necessarily lust. And they'll try to equate that and say, well, we have the same thing. We we're just attracted to people of the same gender and uh, we're not lusting either. We're not going that extra step. What do you say to people who try to kind of hide their entire system, <laughs> which is soft peddling homosexuality in that little, I don't know, technicality there? Um, homosexuality is not heterosexuality. Number one, God designed heterosexuality. Heterosexuality in its purest form is sinless. Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, sinless attraction homosexuality in its purest form is still sin on its best day it's still sin because it came from the devil i mean the devil put it into the heart of man to turn creation upside down and this is what paul describes in romans 1 he says upside down worship leads to upside down sexuality and to say that 
what Paul says is unnatural, meaning not God's design, to say and conflate that with heterosexuality is blatantly unbiblical. And this is one of the issues I have with the Nashville statement, the SBC Nashville statement. Yeah. It conflates, it puts homosexuality and heterosexuality side by side. And it even uses the language. Um, and, and I've rewrote uh, the Nashville statement. It's called the Crossville statement. And you can find it. You can find it at credoalliance.com. And I mark, we actually have it where I put both documents side by side and show the errors of the Nashville statement. Nashville statement was co-written by John Piper. John Piper teaches that same-sex attraction is not sin. And so the language in the Nashville statement doesn't say that homosexuality is sin. It says homosexual immorality is sin. So it condemns transgenderism outright. It doesn't say transgender immorality is sin. It says transgenderism. But homosexuality, it says homosexual immorality is sin, but not homosexuality. And even the Nashville statement, there are numerous people, Robert Gagnon, Robert Gagnon, who says same-sex attraction is not sin, signed the Nashville statement. John Piper co-wrote it who says same-sex attraction is not sin. I mean, it, it, it's so frustrating because this is it. I mean, this is everywhere. It's infiltrated literally all of evangelicalism. There, there's, there's very few, there's very, very few groups in evangelicalism that is not fighting this issue. I, I want to stop there if we can real quick. And I know you're on a roll. Uh, what you said though um, is like, it, it, it might shock some people and, Sometimes we need the milk before the meat. And so what I'm hoping is you can explain some things. We've already talked about revoice theology. Now we're talking about the Nashville statement and how that has kind of, uh, I guess, more or less soft peddled or or it's uh, it's equated homosexuality and heterosexuality in, in a certain way. It's created a comparison that has led to people who believe in revoice theology to justify same sex attraction. Um, but there wouldn't there be a big difference, though, people would say between um, I mean, I, I'm trying to even think a lot of people sign the, the, the national statement, right? I think Al Mohler signed the national statement. I don't even remember. I mean, you you, you would know more than me. W- wouldn't they're not in revoice, right? They're, you're not saying they're uh, the same as revoice. So uh, explain that to me, if you would, just um, w- w- the compromise that you see in the national statement versus the compromise in revoice is revoice just the logical uh next step for people who signed the Nashville statement or is it something separate or what's the connection? The, the Nashville statement rebukes making homosexuality, your identity, part of your identity. So run around calling yourself a gay Christian. That's essentially the good that came out of the Nashville statement. So everybody that signed it is against making homosexuality part of your identity in Christ. Right. And so that rebukes revoice revoice hated the Nashville statement. Um, but it didn't go far enough. It still has these errors in it. It still um, conflates heterosexuality with homosexuality. Um, it does not condemn same-sex attraction. It condemns homosexual behavior. Okay. And, um, you know, the Bible condemns both. Yeah. And, and uh, that, that gets into this idea, um, uh, cocubescence. I'm probably still saying it wrong. <laughs> it's a new word for me. <laughs> Yeah, you go, go for it. You say it for everyone. Uh, concupiscence. Concupiscence. I, I, there we go. When I first read it, I did the same thing, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I mean, I, I just I'm not used to seeing that word, but that was the uh, the term, I guess, uh, in uh, translations of Augustine's work that's used to describe the lust of the flesh. Um, why, why don't you tell us a little bit about that? One of the things I found interesting in your dissertation was this, uh, the, how Augustine went back and forth on this issue of concupiscence and it and the Roman Catholic Church essentially rejected Augustine and they and so their theology on this particular topic is weak just like Revoice theology is weak and you make the argument that the reformed or the, the Protestant reform view has been is stronger and that we're kind of casting that asunder now and that's one of the big problems so can you take us a little bit through that history um in, in the church of how we got to this point Sure, sure. So early on, Augustine basically said that uh, concupiscence or sinful desire is not sin early in his ministry. But by the time you get like 10, 20 years into his ministry, he goes back on that and rebukes, rebukes that and argues clearly that anything contrary to God in us is sin. That the will, whether or not you volitionally choose something is irrelevant concerning the morality of the desire. The, the telos or the goal of the desire determines whether or not it is obedient to God. Right? So is it aimed at God? Is it aimed at holiness? And this is what James 1 says, right? James 1 argues that inner temptation is always aimed at death. It can't grow up into anything else. It can't become anything else. It is always aimed at death. Right? And so Augustine argued that, and essentially it was the Pelagians, his arguments against the Pelagians, where I think that helped to solidify his understanding of sin, because they were arguing that concupiscence is good, <clears throat> that you're created with these um, desires that, that are not sinful, right? They're, they're, you become a sinner later on, you're not born sinful, you don't, you know, and uh Augustine rebukes Julian, for example, in one of his final works, and uh, it actually was unpublished, and they published it after he died. Um, it was unfinished, and so, uh, but it, it is hundreds of pages long. <laughs> it's huge, but uh, but then you get to the Reformation, and by the time you get to the Reformation, both the Roman Catholics and the Protestants in the 1500s argued that concupiscence is is actual sin, or it's a transgression against God. Right. So both the Roman Catholics and the Protestants were arguing that. But where they departed ways, uh, where they parted ways was at the Council of Trent. Um, the argument was over what is sin in the baptized? What is sin in those who have been baptized? It, it, Rome said that concupiscence no longer had guilt. It no longer produced any guilt in the baptized. And they said anybody who says otherwise, let, you know, anathema, let them go to hell. And um, they departed from both Augustine and Aquinas on that issue because um, both of them argued that in the baptized, there was still the um, form of sin or um, there was still the relic of sin in the baptized. And they, they were, you know, the, the people who opposed it, the Augustinians didn't win at Trent, but the people who opposed it, they argued that if there's still any form of sin in the baptized, then God must hate it. So God must hate these individuals um, still. And so they, the first forum at the Council of Trent, and you can go read this in my dissertation, they quote both Augustine and Aquinas in the canon, I think it's canon five on original sin. And they quote them affirmingly. 
But then the final product that actually made it into the canons of Trent, um, they leave out the quote of Augustine and Aquinas. Like they, they reject the teaching of Augustine and Aquinas on this issue. And the reformers said, no, you know, sinful desire in a Christian is still sin, right? It is still the same thing. It's just that it's imputed to Christ. Sin doesn't change in the baptized is, is essentially what the Protestants argued. So sin is the same thing. It's just imputed to Christ. And, um, and so, so both, so if you believe that same-sex attraction is not sin, both the Roman Catholic Church all the way up to the 1500s and the Protestants all the way up to uh, the early 2000s probably <laughs> would say you're a heretic. I mean, it, there's no way around it. The Council of Trent would say that you're going to hell. Um, the Protestants would say the same thing. So Roman Catholic theology today, and I know that's not our main topic, but um, my understanding is they're they're also kind of soft on this, right? Uh, the same-sex attraction. Yes, they they say that you're only culpable for what you choose. Right. And so that most of Revoice's language comes from modern Roman Catholicism. Because I was about to say, Revoice uh, advocates seem to always use the phrase unchosen desires. Right. Uh, Which, to, to, right. Which, as if that's what makes something sin, that's Pelagian. Ah. I mean, that's straight Pelagian. I mean, yeah, as if your choice determines what sin is. Like, <laughs> what, does it matter if it's unchosen? Can an unchosen desire send you to hell? You know, you look in the Old Testament, Israel had sacrifices for unknown, unknown sins. Right. Sins they were not aware of. Like, what what does what does man's choice that's that's Pelagian an overemphasis on the volitional will the capacity when you read Augustine he says to starve all sin in you starve it I mean that's how you fight it right you know you you starve it to death well, and that was the common understanding throughout all of church history and spiritual disciplines uh, mortifying your sin was just a regular part of the Christian life and until about five seconds ago on particular certain sins. And so that's what you're dealing with. And and we're all dealing with it now. Um, so how far is this cancer that you've described that really is the overturning of all of church history and biblical theology? Where How far is this, this gone? Because we don't hear people talking about it as much as perhaps you do, or, so, you know, I've certainly talked about it as well, but I'm not maybe talking about it at the level you're talking about it. There's so few. I could count them on one hand, <laughs> the people that are pointing this kind of thing out. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little surprising. So where, where uh, are the, the, the guardians of orthodoxy? Um, and if they're not around, then what, how far is this compromise taken us? Well, I'll just, I'll just name heroes in, in this, uh, this episode. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, let's start with uh, Kevin D. Young. Kevin D. Young, you know, I appreciate a lot of D. Young's work. But on this subject, he has not been clear, and he's actually part of the problem. Um, it's funny because he is on. he was on the council. So I want to say it was 2020 when Revoice, you know, it's come to a head in the PCA. Right. So Greg Johnson's church is a PCA church. He's a teaching elder. He was a teaching elder. They just left about a month ago. They left the PCA. 
but um, his church would host the Revoice Conference every year. So there was a big, you know, uproar in the PCA over this issue. And if you go look at it, most it's the teaching elders versus, versus the ruling elders. You know, Interesting. It, it, yeah, yeah. It, it's the so the. What, which tells me that the PCAs, um, seminaries or colleges, uh, have been producing or soft peddling this stuff. And that's why it's in the teaching elders primarily and not so much the ruling er- elders. The ruling elders are more conservative than the teaching elders in the PCA generally. Um, but looking at D. Young, and so D. Young, so they – in response to Revoice, they formed this uh, group to kind of write the doctrine, um, to write this doctrinal statement responding to Revoice. And D. Young was on that committee, so he actually had to had to wrestle with the history and and study. And so I don't know if he still affirms this, uh, but he has not renounced it. And this this is something that frustrates me with evangelical elites. They can teach heresy, they can teach rank things that are unbiblical. And then they just ignore it. They memory hole it. They never publicly respond, right. you know, and, and it, it's political. There's no way biblically that you can say or never respond or never correct if you taught heresy in the past. If you taught that heinous sin was okay. You taught something that, well, same-sex attraction is not sin. Um, so D. Young, back in 2015, and this is him answering the question, is homosexual orientation sinful? Is homosexual orientation sinful? And this is at Crossway. So it indicts Crossway. And um, here in a minute, I'm going to talk about his book that is from Crossway, that again, indicts Crossway in this, this issue. Which publishing company us. Crossway, right? What now? The publishing yeah. company Crossway. Okay, yes, yeah. publishing company Crossway that has done so much good work over the years. I mean, you could argue that they're kind of the fountainhead of evangelicalism, or at least right. of the reformed movement of the past twenty years. Like they are a big part of that. Um, but in 2015, this is what he says: the Bible is somewhat ambiguous about orientation as such, only because. Orientation, that language is relatively new language, and so you're not going to find a specific verse that talks about orientation. What the Bible does say clearly is that to perform same-sex acts, to engage in homosexual practice or behavior is sin. Leviticus says that a man should not lie with a man as with a woman. In Romans, it talks about exchanging natural relationships, men with women, for unnatural ones with persons of the same gender. In 1 Corinthians 6 and in 1 Timothy 1, in this vice list of sins, one of the sins mentioned are men who practice homosexuality. So the emphasis clearly is on the activity, the consciously chosen activity of homosexual Uh, intimacy. What does that say about orientation? Well, uh, it would certainly suggest that 
the desire, to have a sexual desire for somebody of the same gender is sin if it arises to the level of lust, just like lust for somebody of the opposite sex would be sin. Jesus says that in Matthew chapter 5. And I think we go a little farther to say that the desire itself, the, the kind of attraction is disordered, meaning it's not the way that God designed things from the beginning. Now, having said that, there are many desires we may have in the Christian life that are disordered, and all of us need to come daily to God in repentance for all sorts of desires. So is homosexual orientation sinful? I wouldn't want somebody watching this who has a struggle with same-sex attraction to think that they're beyond the pale of God's mercy or forgiveness, and at the same time to know that Scripture says clearly to act upon those and to engage in that behavior is sinful. He says the, the Bible is somewhat ambiguous about orientation as such. If, let me just correct. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not <Yeah>. ambiguous. <laughs> Jesus said to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If your orientation comes from any of those, it has to love God. <laughs> you know, like It can't be for same-sex attraction. You can't be oriented towards something contrary to God and it not be sin. Um, so he says it's ambiguous about orientation as such only because that language is relatively new language. So you're not going to find a specific verse that talks about orientation. What the Bible does say clearly is that to perform same-sex acts, to engage in homosexual practice or behavior is sin. What the Bible does say clearly. Okay, so Leviticus says that a man should not lie with a man as with a woman. In Romans, Paul talks about exchanging natural relationships, men with women, for unnatural ones with persons of the same gender. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Timothy 1, a vast list of sins. One of the sins mentioned is men who practice homosexuality. So the emphasis clearly is on the consciously chosen activity of homosexual intimacy. This is D. Young. What does the Bible say about orientation? Well, it would certainly suggest that sexual desire for somebody of the same gender is sin if it arises to the level of lust. Just like lust for somebody of the opposite sex would be sin, as Jesus says in Matthew 5. And here he is conflating heterosexuality with homosexuality. He goes on to say, is homosexual orientation sinful? I wouldn't want somebody watching this, it's a video, who has a struggle with same-sex attraction to think that they are beyond the pale of God's mercy or forgiveness. At the same time, I want them to know the scripture clearly says to act upon those attractions and to engage in that behavior is sinful, end quote. So here he is back in 2015, arguing that same-sex attraction is not sin. He, he distinguishes between lust and lust of the flesh, which is, which is something that Augustine didn't do. See, if you have a desire that's contrary to God, it is the beginning of the lust of the flesh. It's not something else. It doesn't become lust of the flesh when you volitionally choose it. It is lust from the root to the fruit, from the seed to the deed. Right? You, you can't distinguish morally between the two. And in James 1, he uses this um, genealogy. What is the genealogy of sin? Well, you lure and entice yourself from within, and then you conceive sin, and then it leads to death, right? So it, he's not saying a good desire or something God produces in you becomes sin. He's saying, no, 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 you, it's your fault. Your flesh is what's producing this in you. If you, if you want to understand James 1, you need to go read James 4. 
where he rebukes them for their desire. He, he says you're murdering one another because of your desires. But here you have the young. Essentially, this is the modern Roman Catholic position on same-sex attraction that he argues. And it, and it gets worse because he has one of the definitive books for, for, from evangelicalism on this subject. It's called What Does the Bible Teach About Homosexuality? Right. And it's published by Crossway. And um, he says there might be some neutral ground of approval or approbation that falls short of sinful desire. A brother may be able to discern that his sister is beautiful or a grown daughter may be able to recognize that her dad is handsome without committing any of the wrong kind of epithemia or sinful desire. In the same way, the person with same sex attraction may be able to apprehend someone the same sex as beautiful or handsome without moral culpability. Now, Think about that. He's comparing, you know, I have a daughter and she is beautiful. He's comparing me believing my daughter is beautiful to to someone who is sexually attracted or noticing that someone is handsome. Okay, so let me let me put it this way. The way that Eve looked at Adam before there was sin. D. Young is saying that a man looking at Adam, the way that Eve first looked at Adam, is not sinful. Right. He's putting it in the category of homosexuality because a, a heterosexual man can, um, I mean, actually, I see guys even do this all the time who, who are into working out. They can admire the physique of another guy and it's uh, it's not, and they're heterosexual, right? They're, they're not. Uh, so... He's taking that, I guess. I know he doesn't use that example, but but something um, as innocuous as that, and then making that, uh, uh, putting that in the category of homosexuality to justify homosexuality. That is that what you're saying? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. He, he's conflating the two because <clears throat> it is not God's design. So God's design, me noticing that. Um, the opposite sex is beautiful. Someone is objectively beautiful. Like there, there are tons of elderly ladies in my church that are beautiful ladies. And by that, right. I don't mean anything sexual whatsoever. You know, I, I mean, they're objectively beautiful. He is saying that there is an objectivity to a homosexual noticing that another man is beautiful. The problem is is what I just said is according to God's design. God has literally designed to where we are supposed to notice the opposite sex concerning beauty. We are not supposed to see the same sex the same way that we do the opposite sex. And that, that is not how Adam and Eve were designed. It's all produced by the fall. So if there was no fall, there would be none of this, none of this argument about same-sex beauty. Right? It is not same-sex beauty that draws um, homosexuals. I hate, I hate even using the term homosexual because that gives too much ground. That is a modern term. Um, it assumes ont ontology, that someone is ontologically a homosexual. Like they, this is who they are from birth. This is who, um, when it's just a pattern of sinful desire. Uh, I, I don't think, I mean, Rosaria Butterfield says this. I don't think there's anything, there's any such thing as a homosexual. There right. are people with pathological sinful desires, habitual sinful desires. And um, 
we've got to we've got to redeem we we've got to redeem the language all the way back to the term homosexual. Yeah, she actually wrote me a note on that, and I I, I just remember I think my response was like I, I don't really know what to say or what to use. I mean, I guess you could say sodomite, but I, I mean, I don't. What term do you use? Um, what I try to say is to people who are having same sex desires. Okay. You know, because then it put so revolts will use this language like I experience like it's happening to them. You know, I experience same sex attraction or which they're trying to take their responsibility away from having the desire. They're the ones having the desire. Right. And, and so having I, I say having same sex attraction desires or having desires of same sex attraction. Because I know in, in certain versions, like arsenicoites and um, what's the other word? Uh, the um, uh, For effeminate men, I'm trying to remember the word for that. Uh, the, the, the Greek terms are, it can be translated as homosexuality. I mean, that's how some modern translators have approached it, at least. Um, if you were on those committees, though, you would suggest making using the phrase uh, people who experience same-sex attraction, though, or home desires that are same-sex. Um, possibly. But I love that they, I I would I love it if they're if they put homosexuality because it rebukes it in toto, right? I mean, yeah. Because the the argument that De Young is making is that only the behavior is sinful, not the desire for the behavior. Yeah. Okay. So so this is I I, I know we just got in the weeds a little bit on the term homosexuality, but like what you just said about De Young might be earth shaking for some people in the reform world, especially who think De Young is. Uh, he's not woke, right? He's not like these other guys who are out in left field. He's the opposite of Tim Keller. He's a force for good in the PCA. And you're telling us um, that, well, you know, not so fast. There's some compromise here. Um, that's, I mean, what, have you had reactions from people when you mentioned Kevin DeYoung's name or maybe some of the other names you're about to mention where they're just, you know, they're in disbelief. They have a hard time accepting that. Oh yeah, yeah, and I, I mean I, I get it. There, there are heroes, you know, heroes in the faith that folks have benefited from for years. They've listened to maybe hundreds of sermons, and they've never heard this stuff, and they haven't read his book. Or if they have read his book, they did not at the time have enough of uh, biblical material on the subject to be able to rebuke it, or you know, their radar might not have been up because of who they were reading. And so people, people are shocked. People are surprised. But D. Young has never went back on any of this, which is very frustrating. He, he's a precursor to Revoice. I mean, this book is a precursor to Revoice. Um, you don't, in my opinion, you don't get Revoice without all these evangelical leaders compromising on this subject. Um, the reason why you have tons I mean, the, the teaching elders in the PCA, for example, you have so many who are not biblical on this subject is because of leaders like De Young. And um, it, it's frustrating because these guys should know better. Um, these guys should know better from the very simple command of Jesus. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Anything that's contrary to that is sin. Mm. I, I don't care if you chose it. Quit talking about yourself. <laughs> you <know? laughs> but, I mean, as if you choosing it has anything to do. The question is, is it obedient to God? Right. Is it obedient? You, your ability doesn't determine whether or not something is sin. 
God in his holiness determines whether or not something is sin. He's made a command. Are you rising to that command? And the answer is no. You can't. I have yet to find anyone to argue that same-sex attraction is obedient to God. They won't argue that, but yet they'll say that it can be turned to good and all this baloney that is contrary to Scripture. You're saying that something contrary to God can be turned to good. Right. Something that is disobedient to God can be, uh, you know, if you use your disobedience to do something good, it's like the greedy person, you know, putting them over the finances of the church or perhaps a, a giving campaign to raise money. Like, <laughs> oh, let's turn his greed to good. No, he needs to quit being greedy. <laughs> like, right. You need to rebuke. Uh, that's the last person you would want over a ministry dealing with money. Yeah. Now, these are good points that are just, and they're so obvious and they're so basic. It's, it, it's uh, almost surprising that it's uh, more people aren't saying what you're saying. Uh, I, I'm curious what other, I mean, I'm sure if you have more to say about Dion, go ahead, but what other uh, voices out there that might be um, trusted by your ordinary run of the mill Orthodox believer have contributed to this environment where same sex attraction is normalized? Well, another one, another one that surprised me because whenever I was researching this for a, for a Twitter talk that Jeff Wright and I were doing, um, I didn't expect to find, uh, for example, Douglas Wilson. Doug, okay, you're gonna, yeah, you definitely have to unpack this one. <laughs> Douglas Wilson has not been clear on this um, for at least uh, since 2019, um, and I I did a Twitter thread on him about two months ago, whenever I saw these quotes, and he responded to me and rebuked me, said I was misrepresenting him. And so I pushed him more and um, he finally affirmed what the Westminster Confession says, which the Westminster Confession says that original sin and its motions are transgressions against God. So anything in us that's contrary to God is a transgression against God. It doesn't matter if you choose it or not. I mean, that's what the Westminster Confession says. That's what the Westminster Larger Shorter Catechism and the Confession say. And Doug Wilson says to he affirms those. So let me read you. So this is August 2022. This is on Douglas Wilson's website. Still today, I've asked him to take this down or at least reword it because it's the modern Roman Catholic position. It is not the evangelical position. So, uh, so a, a listener um, wrote in to Doug Wilson and asked him on his blog, and th this is from August 2022 on Douglas Wilson's blog, um, asked him about homosexual concupiscence. He says, what are your beliefs on concupiscence and specifically as it pertains to homosexuality? This is what Douglas Wilson wrote. He said, I believe that the stirrings of such desire are temptation to be resisted but not confessed, and that indulgence and expression of such desire is to be confessed to God as sin. Under no circumstances should it be made an aspect of your identity, end quote. So he says the stirrings of desire are temptation. So think about your heart, homosexual desire stirring in your heart. He says you just resist it, don't confess it as sin. He's saying same-sex attraction is not sin. I mean, a modern Roman Catholic could affirm that, could say that. And it's not just that. I, I listened to a... Uh, a lecture that he gave at Indiana University 
um, can somebody be both Christian and gay? And uh, th- this was a question that someone asked. They, they stood up at a mic and they asked him, can someone be both a Christian and gay? And this is what Doug said. Can, can somebody be both Christian and gay? Well, certainly. Unless the plan. <laughs> yeah. If you can be Christian and gay, then. Well, you, are you expanding it? Uh, may I expand it a little bit? Is, can, are you asking me if it's all right to be Christian and uh, be gay and it's absolutely okay to be gay and there's nothing wrong with it? Yeah. No. Why not? Yeah, why? Um, we, I have, uh, speaking as, as a pastor, I'm a pastor of a church that has homosexual, homosexuals in it, members in good standing who are homosexuals. Now, because of that, so if you're asking, is that, is that okay? Is it all right for them to be members of the church and have that particular orientation? Absolutely. Uh, if you, but if you're going to accept what the Bible teaches, they are not permitted to express their sexuality in any kind of external way in an open relationship. And if they were, just like we would excommunicate or discipline uh, a guy who moved in with his girlfriend, because if you're a Christian, you need to be married. All right, that's God's law. If you're, if you're a homosexual male or female with that orientation and you express that, then we would, uh, we would admonish you. We'd help you we do everything we could to help you but at the end of the day you can't be a member of our church and express your sexuality that way he said i'm a pastor of a church that has homosexuals in it members in good standing who are homosexuals so if you're asking is that okay is it okay for them to be members of the church and have that particular orientation absolutely but if you're going to accept what the bible teaches they are not permitted to express that sexuality in any kind of external way in open relationship, end quote. Again, the modern Roman Catholic position. I believe Doug Wilson has a poor hemartiology, which is the doctrine of sin or study of sin. And that's, that's really what all this boils down to. Everybody's so bent on talking about grace and love that we do not have a thorough, clear definition of what sin even is. And it's permeated all of evangelicalism. You could say that revivalism is the source, um, but I mean, it's an overemphasis on the grace of God. We don't even know what we're saved from. Yeah, that second uh, quote uh, from Indiana State University is is a little shocking to me, and I wasn't expecting you to go down this road with Doug Wilson. Um, I am anticipating you're going to get flack for this. <laughs> I might do, uh, but. I, I particularly on the, the question of what Doug Wilson has said, which I think you've been very crystal clear. You're steeped in the sources here. Um, I, I think it would be fair to at least let people know what, what was his objection? Because you, you mentioned that he said that you had misrepresented him or, or he, he eventually went back to an orthodox position. Uh, what, what's, what do you think now that you've had this exchange with him? Is he just inconsistent or uh, doesn't see what he's the damage he's done? What, what, what's going on there? In your mind, I think he's has a weak hemardiology. And okay, two, Doug Wilson's an elite. Doug Wilson does not have to apologize if he's wrong. I mean, he it's a, he he gave me the same response that uh, David Prince gave me. I mean, it, it, it's just you're an elite. You don't have to. You don't. He he won't even go change. It would take him a minute to go change the language in this response to Noah. I particularly asked him to go do that. If you if you don't believe this, go change it. 
Right. He won't. He won't own up to it. He won't respond. I mean, it, it frustrates me because I expect more of Wilson. I expect more of him. He is outside of orthodoxy on this issue. Now, he can say he can say that he affirms Westminster. But if you can't clearly tell one of your listeners that, yes, yes, concupiscence is sin. Then you're weak on your your understanding of sin, both historically and biblically. Yeah. I mean, my hope is um, for both D. Young and Wilson and maybe whoever you're going to mention next that they'll see this, that this will get a lot of traction and that will maybe provoke them to go back and retract some of these things that they've said that have been unhelpful. I mean, I've I've had to retract some things in the past that I've said that I've like, oh, that wasn't really the best way or that was that was wrong. And um, it's there's no shame in that. Right. That's actually it's shame if you leave it up. It's shame if you continue in, in steering people in the wrong direction when you've been corrected. And so. Um, I appreciate your bravery in doing this because you're not making friends by going after some of these popular figures. But uh, I would just challenge anyone listening, you know, check out the primary sources here. You know, Jared, uh, his he's steeped in these sources. He's giving you quotes. He's trying to represent them fairly. He's not trying to do a, a hack job here. And if what he's saying is true, then uh, there's really no argument. It's just we have to deal with the truth of the word of God. And um, none of us are, are above that. So. Um, anyway, I'm just, uh, as you can tell, Jared, I am uh, anticipating the people who are going to come on the, the channel and probably um, not appreciate you going after certain people that they have respected and, and let's say have done some good work in other areas. But I think what you're doing is vital. So um, I don't know. Was there anything else you wanted to say about Wilson or or do you want to move on to another figure? Um, I can tell you, um, I can send you the link for that YouTube uh, that YouTube talk that I just quoted from Wilson and give you the timestamps where he says that. Yeah, please do. You know, anything you send me, I'll put in the info section for the listeners so they can go check it out. Good, good. That'd be, that'd be great. That way people can listen to his words themselves. And um, he just has not been clear on this issue. And uh, it, it's just, it's very sad, but can you imagine standing up in front of a church and say, yeah, we've got homosexuals in our church that are in good standing. <laughs> I'm a little shocked. I'll be honest. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. I mean, it's just the the language he chose to use. He was in front of a secular audience, um, but even he's giving so much away in using that language. And then he's even using orientation language, which what in the world is orientation language other than a pathological sinful desire? Like, yeah, I mean, like I'm every sin that you commit, you're oriented to. Yeah. So what does all of a sudden saying that I'm, I have an orientation, how does that, it's trying to take sin away using rhetoric rather than using the gospel. I don't need someone's rhetoric to take my sin away. I've got a savior. Mm-hmm. What do I need some man to try to pacify my conscience whenever Jesus died and has given me his righteousness and taken my sin away? It's, it's so frustrating Yeah, because it, because it, it boils down to a false gospel. I don't need man's rhetoric, you know? You don't, I want to tell people like you don't need men's rhetoric. You don't need D. Young to pacify you. You don't need, you don't need Doug Wilson to pacify you. You have a savior. Um, John Popper is probably one of the biggest offenders on this. And John Popper is a reason, a big reason why I under, came to understand the gospel. Um, I was reading his, and of all things, I was looking for a devotion you know, his devotions 
um, pierced by the word, which is like a 30 day devotion. It is very small, you know, um, but that book made such a difference in my life. And, it, and all it is, is his newsletter articles that he wrote to his church for 40 years or whatever. And it, some of those are pulled out and put into a devotion book. And I, I was a, I was just a young man looking for something that, you know, devotions, most of them are trash. You know? right, right. <laughs> and so I was looking for something that had some meat to it that was still short that I could read. And, and uh, it was just very challenging and very beneficial. But in, in 2012, uh, John Piper, and this is the co-author of the Nashville Statement. Um, he said, same-sex desires and same-sex orientation are part of our broken and disordered sexuality owing to God's subjection of the created order to futility because of man's sin. In Genesis 2, we read about the catastrophic moment when the first man and the first woman rebelled against God. And the effects on them and on the world are unfolded for us in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Genesis and then illustrated in the sin-soaked and death-ridden remainder of the Old Testament, indeed, all of history. The Apostle Paul gives the key interpretation of what happened there and its effect on us. Here's his key word from Romans 8, verses 20 and 21. The creation was subjected to futility. This is God's response to human rebellion. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So this is God who did this. The devil didn't subject it in hope. God cursed creation. We read that in Genesis 3. He subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And then, maybe one of the most important verses of the Bible from my understanding of, of almost everything I deal with in the brokenness of my life, my marriage, my children, this church, this world. Romans 8.23 goes like this. And, and the point of Romans 8.23 is that Paul is looking at the Romans in the face, as it were, who, who are about to say back to him, oh yes, the curse fell upon the world and the whole creation was subjected, but we've been redeemed. And here's his response to that. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's an important verse. And I'm arguing that same-sex desires and same-sex orientation are in that category of groaning, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. 
which means they're in the, the same broad category with all kinds of disordered bodies and minds and emotions. If we tried to make a list, if we tried to make a list of all the kinds of emotional and mental and physical brokenness in the human family, the list would be unending. And all of us are broken. No exceptions. Everybody is disordered. We are disordered in different ways. All of you, without exception, all of you are bent toward desiring things you ought not to desire. All of you. And I could document mine. Desires. We haven't gotten to behavior yet. We all have disorder in our emotions and disorder in our minds and disorder in our bodies. And we groan. We groan because of the damage we do. Waiting, waiting for our final, full, complete adoption, the redemption of our whole bodies, brains, emotions, will. This calls for very, very careful distinctions to be made. Lest you hurt people or hurt yourself unnecessarily. All disorders, all brokenness is rooted in sin. Original sin and our sinful nature. All of it. But, to be caused by a sinful nature and rooted in sin doesn't make a disorder equal to sinning. Let me say it a little differently because our language here just has to be so careful. It is not wrong, but I think proper to say all of our disordered desires that are going after things we shouldn't go after are sinful desires. Sinful meaning they're rooted in sin and they're contaminated and disordered. They're bent. Same-sex desires and same-sex orientation are part of our broken and disordered sexuality owing to God's subjection of the created order to futility because of man's sin. Um, he goes on to look at Genesis 3 and Romans 8. This is a lengthy quote, but I want to get to kind of to the, the nitty-gritty here. Um, well, I think I'm just going to have to read it. So in Genesis 3, he says, we read about the catastrophic moment when the first man and woman rebelled against God. The effects of the, on them and on the world are described in chapters 3 and 4. Then illustrated in the sin-soaked and death-ridden history of the Old Testament, indeed the history of the world, the Apostle Paul sums it up in Romans 8, 20 through 21. 
and not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And I'm arguing that same sex desires and same sex orientation are in that category of groaning. So groaning, groaning for redemption, that same sex desires and same sex orientation are in that category, waiting for the redemption of our bodies, which means they are in the same broad category with all kinds of disordered bodies and minds and emotions. If we tried to make a list of the kinds of emotional, mental, and physical brokenness of the human family, the list would be unending. And all of us are broken and disordered in different ways. All of you are bent to desire things in different degrees that you should not want. We are all disordered in our emotions, our minds, our bodies. This is a call for careful distinctions, lest you hurt people or yourself unnecessarily. All our disorders, all our brokenness is rooted in sin, original sin, and our sinful nature. It would be right to say that same-sex desires are sinful in the sense that they are disordered by sin and exist contrary to God's revealed will. But to be caused by sin and rooted in sin does not make a sinful desire equal to sinning. Sinning is what happens when rebellion against God expresses itself through our disorders. End quote. So, again, he is saying it's so frustrating because it's gobbledygook, right? Um, so it's rooted in sin. It's caused by sin, but it's not sin. <laughs> like, I mean, that's what he's saying. Um, it, it makes no sense. And what's so sad is there's actually an elder at Bethlehem Baptist Church who says that he's a homosexual. He said he, he's what? he said, yeah, there's an elder at Piper's church and he actually quoted Piper. All right. He quotes Piper. Are you free to disclose the name or is that not? You oh, know? I don't, I don't care one bit to tell you the name. He, he, he runs around calling himself. Um, you know, a gay Christian, or at least says that, you know, th this is who I am, or I, these desires are part of me or whatever. Um, okay. Do you so, remember his, his name though, or the, uh, the elder by chance? Yeah. Give me one second and I'll tell you. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't, I didn't want to, sorry, you're making you miss a beat. I just, uh, that that's another, a lot of the, what you're saying are just hard revelations for some of the people who are fans of these folks and they're going to want, where, where, where do you find that? So that man, that, that surprises even me. I was really, wow. Yeah. He, he actually wrote an article for the desiring God website. So, so far who has been, where has this been infiltrated? <laughs> D young. So thank the gospel coalition. All right. It's been infiltrated with Doug Wilson. Think of his ministry. It's been infiltrated with Crossway and now the Desiring God ministry. So this is this is the who's who of evangelical reformed heroes. Grace to you is still fine, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just making yes, sure they, there's some good guys out. OK, they have been the only ones. I mean, maybe not the only ones, but as far as elites, they have been some of the few. Um, this guy's name is Nick uh, Rowan. Nick Rowan. Okay. So he's an elder at, or, or yeah, that's wow. Okay. He's an elder at, um, he's yeah. an elder at Bethlehem Baptist and he argues, he quotes Piper's article. And then in 2013 on the desiring God website, this is what he wrote. He says, in other words, although same sex attraction is a disorder desire owing to the fall and thus rooted in sin and broken by sin, Nevertheless, experiencing same-sex attraction is not in itself an act of sinning, end quote. Wow. 
Well, uh, we've all become Roman Catholics. Is that, what, is that what's happening here on this topic? That's exactly. I mean, modern yeah. Roman Catholics. I mean, Council of Trent would say we're heretics. Council of yeah. Trent would say modern Roman Catholicism is heresy. Yeah, that, it, it's, a, I guess, a result of modernity and humanism and just uh, man being lovers of themselves. And um, it's just it is startling, though. And it's it's so tempting. It's so subtle. To, I mean, some of these quotes that you're reading, I think if I didn't have my guard up, I would uh, on, on at least a few of them, I might n- miss you know, what is actually being said there. Um, I mean, so you, you've gone through these major evangelical uh, industries, if you will, and some of the figureheads in them and how they've, they've capitulated on this. Uh, you said, you know, grace to you hasn't seemed to fall to this. I mean, there are, there other good ministries that you can recommend like positive people out there who are saying what you're saying, or at least they're not saying what some of these other folks have been saying that, that are, uh, that that's erroneous. So there is a, another co-author of the, um, of the Nashville statement is Denny Burke. And uh, Denny Burke and John Piper basically wrote the Nashville Statement. Okay. So Denny, Denny Burke, I would love to see his first draft. So he he wrote he wrote the first draft, and he sent it to Piper, and he said Piper made so many corrections. He had to be he he was a co-author. He had to say he was a co-author of the Nashville Statement. And so I wish that we could have gotten Denny Burke's first draft for the Nashville Statement. Um. Because Denny Burke, his book with Heath Lambert on homosexuality is great. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield is great on this subject. Um, The PCA study report, which ironically that D. Young was a part of, the theology in that thing is basically my dissertation. I mean, it it is spot on. Um, And ironically, Keller was part of that committee as well. Um, And then Keller's part of the problem. I was going to say, I just was reading some stuff on Keller that was way past some of what you read from Piper Wilson and DeYoung. So that's interesting. Yeah, they it. Some of these guys are inconsistent. That's yes. The PCA study report that most of these guys know their theology, at least they do. Those who were on that committee and had to actually study their history and had to do a deep dive on the subject. They know it now. Um, but when you read the PCA study report, you get to the end on the application and they undo a lot of the theology. Like, like, you know, it's all about empathy. And I, I don't I don't see Jesus ever being empathetic towards sin ever. I don't see Paul, Peter. I don't see any literally anyone in Scripture being empathetic towards sin. And so this nonsense about being empathetic towards people who are sinning and having sinful desires is not in the Bible. Repentant sinners, yes, but not people that yes. want to keep their sin. Yeah. Yes. But but empathy, the kind of I got to walk in your shoes. Like, right, right, right. Like the way that people they act like homosexuality is such this awful burden to bear. Look, look uh, you know, John. You battle indwelling sin. I battle indwelling sin. We all battle indwelling sin. Like, who isn't in battling indwelling sin? Join the club. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's something that's so frustrating with Revoice. They have told people who battle this sin that you have to get around other people who have your same sinful battles. 
That, that's what you got to do. You got to get around, and which is a lie from the pit of hell. What they need to do is get around. We're all in the same stinking boat. Like we're all yeah. battling. Well, you, you, you who are spiritual restore such a one, not uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and get together with all the right. other people with the same problem and <laughs> don't tempt each other. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Like they literally have, have said all these people who have the same desires. They're even encouraging them. Revoice just this year. They're, they're like trying to get people who have same sex desires to form covenant households where they, they covenant friendships. Oh, I've, I've, it, yeah, I've seen this. Yes. They call it households and they call it, I mean, it's marriage without the sex supposedly, right. but they, they even advocate for like cuddling and, and I'm just uh. like, what in the world? What in the world? Like this, this is just pure evil. And you're going to find that since Revoice, um, one of the main churches has left the PCA they're they're right. headed down. I mean, they, they just this past year they argued. There was a speaker at Revoice that argued that transgenderism is um, is consistent with Roman Catholic theology. So she's she was trying to argue in favor of this is that Memorial Presbyterian Church. You're saying. Right. No, I, I'm saying a speaker at Revoice. Oh, wait, does that Revoice? Okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah, not necessarily at uh, Great Johnson's know, Church. Yeah, yeah. but uh, it, it's so frustrating because we know where this ends. It ends where James one says it ends, which is death. Right. And um, there, there's no way around it. You have to repent. You have to leave the old man behind. You you don't say oh, I'm going to keep a little bit of him. You know, you have to leave it all behind. And what's so scary, Rosaria has said this. She said, you know, if Revoice was around whenever I was um, being saved, whenever I was coming to a saving knowledge of Christ, she said, I might still be battling, you know, same-sex desires. Because mm. they, they have said that it's not sin. And if you tell someone that's, that it's not sin, just think it. So this doesn't work historically, doesn't work biblically. It also doesn't work logically. Imagine telling someone that your desire is not sin and then saying, but you can't act on it. <laughs> right. Like if it's not sin, why can't I act on it? So, well, because, yeah, it, yeah. It, you know, if you act on a desire that's not sin, what does it produce? Non-sin. So, so if you're, you know, struggling with obesity and, and you're just like, well, let's go down and watch them make the food. Let's go down to the barbecue joint. Let's smell the 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 wonderful smoke that's coming up and the meats and and then just savor that that's not a sin that's fine there's nothing wrong with that but don't ever partake right it, it, it would right. seem so ridiculous to someone it'd be like well why not if it smells good if it's good for my nose why isn't it good for my mouth it's and, like telling a white supremacist to go join go find a church that only has white people right yeah. <laughs> like like it, don't, it, don't it, go join the clan, but don't participate in any of their bad activities. Just kind of, you know, be with those people or something. It's uh, it, go, we wouldn't do move, this. Yeah. Go move to a white neighborhood or go like it, it, it's just it's empty rhetoric. It, it, yeah. It's not biblically consistent. It's not it doesn't work with any other sin. I mean, you, you can't argue this about any other sin. And if you tried, people would laugh you out. So. Uh, Patrick Schreiner, Patrick Schreiner's at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. This is uh, Tom Schreiner's son. Mm -hmm. And um, he has argued, uh, he's argued the same things on this issue. And, um, 
it's disheartening. I, I went back and forth with him years ago on the issue of same-sex attraction. It was on Facebook. I think it was a Desiring God article. He commented and I replied and we went back and forth. That was back when he was at Western Seminary. So I knew where he stood on the issue. But then Midwestern hired him. And um, in an article that he has deleted from his blog, um, he argues that same-sex attraction is not sin. He says there should be a difference between desire and lust and orientation inclination, arguing that the inclination or orientation is not sin, but desire and lust are sin, which again is, is the Roman Catholic position. It's not what Augustine taught. Augustine didn't distinguish between lust and inclination. They're one and the same. The beginning of a sinful desire, the beginning of lust is still lust. Like it's just not, um, it's just not an actual sin. When they used actual, they just meant that you're volitionally choosing it. Like you're actively involved in it. Yeah. But your, your flesh is dragging your will along before you're actively involved. Yeah. Like, I mean, it, no, it makes perfect sense. That's just biblical theology. Um, yeah. Well, I, I hate to end this abruptly because, um, man, I, I you have so much more I'm sure you could share, and maybe we should have you on again to talk more about this. But uh, I just want to say that, um, you know, Dr. Moore, I appreciate everything uh, that you've done, and you've restored my faith in Moore's because after Beth Moore and Russell Moore, <laughs> I was starting to wonder if I should ever trust a Moore again, but uh, you've, you've helped me with that. So well, thank you for that. Thank you um, for just being brave, you know, enough to talk about this. And, uh, you know, some of these people um, pr- need just a correction and, and they're not going to be challenged. I've noticed that when you reach a certain level of influence, people are afraid to challenge you because, you have power. They, a lot of the people that are around you are either riding your coattails, even though they would never say it that way, or they're, they're benefiting from you. You, you become an industry in and of yourself. And, and you're willing, cause you're outside of those bubbles to go and sort of prick them and say, look, you know, I'm, here's what the word of God says. Here's what historical theology says. Here's what you're saying. It's not consistent. And I'm just really, I'm hopeful that people will see this, hear it, and maybe go course correct because of it. And, uh, looking forward to those good stories that'll come from it. So you've encouraged me. I appreciate it. And um, real quick, uh, before I let you go, what's your website? Where do you want people to go to check out your material? Um, right now, I don't really have a website, but but check out credoalliance.com. It's Jeff Wright and I, Chris Bolt. There's several, there's several guys involved in Credo Alliance in writing uh, confessional statements. Like we've got a confession that's that is succinct on biblical sexuality, critical race theory. Um, I mean, there's a group of Baptists that are trying to kind of carve out, um, you know, a, a clear biblical understanding on these issues. And it's a, it's confessions that your church can adopt. Um, follow me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. And, um, you know, if you're a publisher, I would love to talk with you about publishing on this subject. You, you know, I, I'm going after Desiring God and Crossway and now Canon Press, evidently. So, uh, you know, it kind of took a big chunk out of what I can possibly publish <laughs> with. Yeah, that uh, does so, narrow down the field quite a bit. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to self-publish because it, it's ultimately about getting the truth out there to where people yeah. can wrestle with it. And again, I would debate any of these guys on the subject. I'd debate DeYoung. I'd debate Wilson. Um, I'd debate any of them. And I know Wilson would slaughter me as far as rhetoric, but this 
biblically, there's no way you can argue these things, you know? Sure. Sure. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Moore. God bless you and your ministry. If people want to check those websites out, please do so. And, um, and, and we'll, you know, hopefully have some more conversations in the future. I think some hopefully productive conversations as a result of this conversation that we've just had. So God bless your ministry, brother. Yeah. My pleasure. pleasure. Bye now. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.